Since 1984, the Criterion Collection has been dedicated to publishing important classic and contemporary films from around the world in editions that offer the highest technical quality and award-winning original supplements. No matter the medium, Criterion has maintained its pioneering commitment to presenting each film as its maker would want it seen, in state-of-the-art restorations with special features designed to encourage repeated watching and deepen the viewer's appreciation of the art of film. This is the Criterion Connection, where we journey through those films together by connecting them to each other through thematic, cast, and crew members, or any other various elements. Welcome to the Criterion Connection, a podcast where two film lovers explore the Criterion Collection by connecting these iconic films to each other through the greater tapestry of cinema. Each week, we'll discuss a film that is connected in some way to the film we watched the previous week. The only caveat? The film must be a part of the Criterion Collection. We'll also be highlighting new additions to the collection, great hidden gems on the Criterion channel, and more. I'm Ian, and this is my co-host, Mackenzie. Hello! This week, we're going to be discussing our top 10 Criterion picks, and we'll start in earnest with our first pick next week. But for now, hey, Mackenzie, how you doing? I'm good. How are you? We're podcasting. We are. I'm great. I'm so excited to be starting this journey with you. <laughs> I am very, very excited to have like an excuse to watch more Criterion movies. That's my, and hang out with my buddy, of course. <laughs> Me too. Uh so first things first, I think we should tell the listeners a little bit about yourselves, uh, how we got started watching movies and why we fell in love with them. So if you want to start us off. Oh, yes. My name is Mackenzie. My pronouns are she, her. I'm currently in Chicago. Um, I, I don't think I was ever a very serious movie watcher for most of my life. Uh, I, I always tell the story that the first movie I remember loving was Bowfinger, which is a Steve Martin, Eddie Murphy vehicle, because my mother had stolen the blockbuster tape of it, and I found it and watched it and fell in love with it, and it became my favorite movie when I was like five years old. And from there, I definitely more adopted my mother's taste in films. So a lot of the films that I feel like a lot of people associate with me, uh, like the Charlie's Angels movies, uh, Coyote Ugly, which is another movie I, I grew up loving, uh, the Scooby-Doo films, a lot of these kind of silly, kind of more studio films um, are the movies I loved very passionately growing up. Uh, I recently talked to my other podcast, Austin Danger podcast, that Baz Luhrmann was also a huge filmmaker growing up. So I feel like I was very much a, a kid and teen who loved these big kind of maximalist, silly joints, <laughs> I suppose, in terms of film. And, um, yeah, it wasn't until a couple of years ago, I think, that I started getting into like, oh, there's a lot more kind like, obviously, I saw certain films as they were coming out and stayed up to date on things like Parasite or like things that came out that were big. But I was very a casual moviegoer that sort of, unless it was a big cultural moment, I might not really be seeing it. Uh, and then, yeah, a couple of years ago, my partner bought me uh, two of my favorite movies ever, uh, the Criterion editions of those movies. And that's because I found out, I was like, what? Moonstruck has a criteria. What is Criterion? What it has a fancy DVD and all these bonus features. What is this? And uh, I uh, that and Desert Hearts, which I also love. And I just was like, what is this whole Criterion thing? And um, she bought me these Blu-rays, and it was it was that was it. I was sold, and I immediately was like, I popped in my Moonstruck DVD and saw all of the 
features and how amazing it was. And I was like, oh, I need to get into this. What is this Criterion Collection thing? And from there, it really, it, it's, it kind of spun me into figuring out more about cinema. And the Criterion Collection was definitely like my base of like where I should start with like finding really, really great cinema and finding communities online, including the one we met in, that would kind of help harbor that love of cinema. And yeah, I, I am a full-blown cinephile now. Uh, and the collection definitely started it all. <laughs> um, what about you? What were the movies you grew up watching? And how did you come to being a cinephile yourself? Yeah. So, hi, everyone. My name's Ian. My pronouns are they, them. Um, and growing up, I had a massive collection of Disney and Pixar clamshells. And we also collected DVDs as a family. Every single Thursday, we would go to Hollywood Video, which was kind of like a knockoff blockbuster and we would get the DVDs three for $15. Mom got one, dad got one, and Ian got one. And so over the, you know, over my youth, I collected a lot of movies and fell in love with them. My favorite thing to do um, week weekend nights was pop in a movie with my whole family, pop up a big a bowl of popcorn, and just take in whatever uh, films I could. You know, the films in my youth were mostly cheesy rom-coms the one that's been on the top of my mind lately is like legally blonde oh, uh, but films like yes. that but also like Nora Ephron films so you've got mail sleepless in Seattle um and then in addition to that I was really influenced by what my mom really loved and she loves like David Fincher films and Steven Soderbergh films so without oh. knowing it I kind of had this really interesting base for a budding cinephile but then as I like grew up I got more invested in my activities like marching band and soccer practice. So I kind of like stopped watching movies really regularly. And then when I went to college, I got really interested in like television, like television as an art form. So I really stopped watching movies altogether up until about two years ago. That was still the case. I really didn't watch movies. Uh, but a friend of mine that I met through another mutual friend introduced me to the Criterion Collection through a film we'll talk about a little bit later. Um, but because of that, I had not really in earnest or knowingly seen a Criterion film up until that point. So everything that I'll probably talk about today has been a first viewing within the past two years. But it's come to mean a lot to me and impact me in many different ways. But yeah, the first film I saw uh, as part of the Criterion collection was Jean-Luc Godard's Masculine Feminine, which led to a viewing oh. of a film that I will talk a little bit about later. But I only came to Masculine Feminine because of that friend I mentioned, he, you know, introduced me to the Criterion channel. And then my best friend, his name's Jacob, he also had a membership to the Criterion channel and had recently watched Masculine Feminine and was like, Ian, you got to check this out. It's really, really cool. Um, it's like right up your alley. It's really intelligent. <laughs> um, not to say that I'm really intelligent, but I have. Yeah, a... well, hey, this movie's smart as hell. <laughs> so <are> you. <laughs> But I have an air of intelligence and I like things that at least exude that kind of attitude, I guess. <laughs> but yeah, so that's kind of like where I started with movies, really just watching them a lot as a kid, falling out with them, but then coming back to them rather recently in the grand scheme of things. I love it. So Mackenzie, for those of our listeners who may not be super familiar with the Criterion Collection, I was hoping you could give them a really quick rundown of what that is, and then I'll kind of guide them through a little bit about what this podcast is going to focus on specifically. Yeah, the Criterion Collection is really a distribution company that is dedicated to providing home video releases of classic 
contemporary films that have a level of importance. And uh, I know that sounds a bit snobby, but it's, it's, it is a subjective thing, I think, of what deems an important film. But I've come to personally really view the Criterion Collection as um, something I can trust. Like, I know if I'm coming to the Criterion Collection, there is a level of um, merit and artistic quality that these films will have because I trust the people that have been putting these together. I think it definitely serves film scholars and media scholars and cinephiles, ac- academia kind of people. Like I think those are the kind of people that really gravitate to the Criterion Collection. Um, and yeah, it just it's it's worked a lot with Janus Films to help bring high quality restorations of also world cinema that some people might not have access to any other way other than through distributors like Criterion. So I think the work they do is really, really important as distributors and as a pillar of home media, which I think people are realizing more and more as shows begin to disappear off HBO Max <laughs> without another word. People are realizing that owning your films and owning the media you love is really important in this day and age. Uh, and so I think Criterion sort of stands as a pillar of a certain type of cinephile community of making sure we hold on to these films and save them for future generations Ah, yes beautifully put i don't think i could have said it better myself thank Um, you i was free from jazz (laughs) ripping it over there (laughs) i loved it so that's the criterion (laughs) collection but what is the criterion connection so how this is going to work is we're going to be working through two film cycles i want you to the listener to think of it like a double feature curated for you by us one host will pick a film for the, from the collection, and it will then be the other host's job to pick another film from the collection, making a connection, either thematic, either through a filmmaker or otherwise, to that previous film. At the end of this episode, I'm going to make a pick for us to kick us off, determined in an off-mic coin toss between Mackenzie and myself. And then the <laughs> following episode, Mackenzie will come in with her pick connected to that pick, and then we will discuss those films moving forward. I hope that makes sense. Do you think I missed anything, Mackenzie? No, I think that works. I'm Perfect. very excited to let people know what our first pick is going to be. And I already know what my connection is. It's great. <laughs> I'm beyond excited for your pick because I also know. Uh, but everybody's <laughs> going to have to Everybody's gonna have to wait on bated breath to find out. And so after the connection has been made, we will wipe the slate clean and begin again with a fresh pick the following episode and so on and so on. Mm-hmm. So... With all that said, with all that under our belts, I think it's time that Mackenzie and I get to our top 10 Criterion picks. What do you say, Mackenzie? Oh, I'm so excited, but I'm also nervous. (laughs) Don't be nervous. It's going to be exciting. You've got some great picks. I've got some great picks. I think between us, we might even give a fresh Criterion collector a really good place to start. Yes. Yeah. So if you're coming to the Criterion collection for the first time through this episode, super excited for you. And I hope you enjoy uh, Mackenzie and I's top 10 Criterion picks. I'm going to ask Mackenzie to start us off with her number 10, building with anticipation to number one. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Well, in my number 10 slot, uh, I think of starting with a strong one, a more recent addition to the collection, spine number 1126, Bildy Wilder's iconic 1944 double indemnity. I, I love the way Criterion writes about this by asking us a bunch of questions in the blurb. They write, has dialogue ever been more perfectly hard-boiled? Has a femme fatale ever been so deliciously wicked as Barbara Stanwyck? And has 1940s Los Angeles ever looked so seductively sordid? 
Um, Billy Wilder, I think, is one of my favorite old Hollywood directors. I am very excited to watch more of him. He only has three films in the collection, I think mostly from rights issues. Uh, I hope every movie ends up in there one day. But Double <laughs> Indemnity is the one I chose to highlight today because I think it is like the peak noir. This is the film that got me into noir and one of the films that made me realize like, oh, old Hollywood isn't so detached as I might think it is. I was very nervous to come to older movies because I assumed there would be a level of fakeness or a level of just distance that I wouldn't be able to connect with. Um, but I definitely think that this and another film in the collection, The Lady Eve, both starring Barbara Stanwyck, who I adore, my girl, um, those were the two movies that like taught me that old Hollywood could be for me. And I've now gone on a big journey of old Hollywood that I'm still on that I adore. Double Indemnity is my number one. I switched this in last minute because I needed my Billy Wilder in there. And yeah, I just think that this is a phenomenal film. I think that it is like if you want to know what a what a noir is and you've never really journeyed into that genre before, I think this is like the perfect film to get the idea of like what a noir and how good it could be. And yeah, I just think it's it's just it, it is really great. I was so excited to see it in the collection. One of my claims to fame in my own household <laughs> is that story. many moons ago, I think so criterion, if none of you know, they have a suggestion email that you can like email to them and be like, here's what I think should be in the criterion collection. And I've emailed them a couple times because I thought, what could it hurt? And one time I did email them that double indemnity should be in the collection. And like four months later, this got announced. So my impact, that's all I'm saying. Everybody has Mackenzie to thank for double indemnity <laughs> criteria collections you're all welcome now i'm going to email them and berate them about adding the apartment until the day i die um <laughs> but ian have you seen double indemnity i have seen double indemnity rather recently in the grand scheme of things less than a year ago and i agree with everything you said i think it is like to me the quintessential film noir like it mm -hmm. defines the genre i think a lot of people in certain cinephile communities might have a kind of tepid reception or uh might have somewhat of a tepid reputation in certain cinephile communities because it is like something that gets shown in film school a lot but i think mm. that's kind of misguided because i think it is just so perfectly crafted the dialogue is just expertly written and i just to piggyback on what you said barbara stanwick is just perfection in the film <laughs> she's amazing yeah. No, I, I do love Double Indemnity, and, and I, I do own the Criterion 4K, and I pop it in at least once a year at this point. <laughs> I love it. Ian, what is your number 10? So my number 10 is probably one of the coolest films in the Criterion collection, and similar to Double Indemnity, probably has a certain uh, reputation in certain cinephile communities as being like cinephile light or cinephile baby but mine is Louis Malle's Elevator to the Gallows, spine number 335. And I just love this movie. It is like the quintessentially cool film on my list. I think it's <laughs> like just so suave and oozes, you know, debonair uh, kind of machismo and femininity off of it. Uh, right off the bat, there's a super close-up of Jeanne Moreau's face. And there's this instant kick-in of Miles Davis's original score for this film. And it's just one of the coolest things that you can put on a television set. I could watch this over and over again. I could put it on the background while cooking, which I've done. Or I could just be absolutely engrossed into it. I think one of the killer things about this movie is Louis Ma was 24 years old when he made it. And it's his debut feature. 
It's got an original score, like I mentioned, by Miles Davis. And the lighting in this film always gets to me. It's like expertly lighted, especially for a debut feature from a 24-year-old. You can tell that Louis Mal had like real command of the craft from the get-go. And I know that he's got like a very varied career, which I really haven't seen that much of. This is, I think, the only Louis Mal film I've ever seen, but I love it so much. And I just don't think that we get films that are like crafted in such this way anymore. It's a really taut thriller. It's like only 90 minutes long. And yeah, it's just sublime. Oh, I yeah. love Have that. You seen I've it? never seen this movie. No, I haven't. I haven't seen this movie. I, I haven't seen most of your top 10, which feels like a crime. But I also am now like, I should save them so we can talk about them on this show. Yeah. Um, but so many of your top 10s uh, interest me. And this one recently kind of came on my radar when I saw a review um, of it recently from a friend. And I was like, what is this movie? And I looked at it and immediately went on my watch list. And uh, yeah, this is like top of my list. I would love to watch. It looks so cool. I just really, and oh my gosh, you tell me about a Miles Davis score. <laughs> I want to put it yeah. on the second we get done recording, but yeah. I'll save it. I'll it's save so it, good. Promise. For those who haven't seen it, it involves a love triangle. It involves murder. It involves betrayal. It involves <laughs> spy espionage. And I think it's also just super quintessentially criterion. So yeah. Yeah. Mackenzie, what is your number nine? My number nine is probably one of the most obvious choices in the universe. And you're going to be, if you're a criterion person, you're going to be like, oh, of course, this is on this list. But, you know, suck my butt. It's on my list. Spine <laughs> number 147, Wong Kar Wai's incredible In the Mood for Love. I think it's one of the, I also feel like In the Mood for Love is like a quintessential criterion film. Uh, definitely one of the first ones. I watched when diving into the Criterion because it was a film that a lot of people were like, oh, this is great. And I made this realization recently because three directors I adore are Wong Kar Wai, Baz Luhrmann, and Pedro Almodovar. And I think I love these directors that have these lush, gorgeous, romantic kind of visuals. Uh, Baz being the more like ADHD uh, side <laughs> of it. Almodovar in the middle. And then we have Wong Kar Wai here with the sort of quiet, contemplative slow romanticism of in the mood for love uh two amazing performances by two of the greatest actors ever with tony leung and maggie chung uh it's you know the classic kind of yearning of these two people that live in the houses next door the apartments next door and their spouses are cheating on each other and it seems like such a spouses are cheating on them with each other it's a hard movie to, to, to say the plot of i guess um, but God, it's just one of the most beautiful looking movies I've ever seen in my life. I recently got to go to the 4K restoration in theaters. And boy, Yumeji's theme just blasting as there's the there's leaving and going to the noodle place. It's like the most amazing thing ever. I just In the Mood for Love is the first movie I, I think I watched that um, dared me to be patient with it and dared me to just sink into it and experience the emotion it's such a beautifully just like you kind of I feel like I'm floating when I watch it I feel like it's it, it swirls me up in it's in its story and I don't know I just find it to be such a profoundly beautiful film and uh I've watched a couple of uh his films since most of them are in the collection I've I've experienced a lot of them uh but In the Mood for Love remains my favorite I think it's a lot of people's favorites it's just so tight it's so beautiful the red and the green, you know, color grading with that cinematography. Um, it's just, it's just, it's mind blowing. Uh, I really, really love this movie. It's great. I, I know you've seen it because we discussed it. 
Yeah, no, I actually, I actually only omitted it from my list because it was on yours and I wanted to, you know, talk about some other films, but I know we've talked about this. I too was able to catch the 4k restoration on the big screen. And it's one of the most amazing uh, theater going experiences that I've ever had because exactly as you kind of say and allude to this film just commands you to let it wash over you and if you give mm-hmm. yourself up to in the mood for love it's one of the most uh beautiful uh film experiences that you could possibly have i know i just kind of talked about how great that miles davis score is in elevator to the galas but i think this might be one of my favorite film scores the one that's um composed for in the mood for love yeah i absolutely love this movie as well who doesn't love the dun dun yeah no it's It's i listen to it on dog walks uh, that's how much i love it (laughs) do you walk in slow motion you walk your dog you have to walk very very slow (laughs) not so fast (laughs) (laughs) Uh, i love it i think um, i also think i one car wide was my first like auteur i ever dove into mm-hmm. maybe outside of lynch so yeah just mm-hmm. special movie what is your number nine i believe we're on my number nine is going to harken back to our opening discussion it is going to be jean-luc godard's pierre le fou spy number 421 and this was one of the first films in the collection i ever saw now while the first film i knowingly saw that was in the collection was jean-luc godard's masculine feminine I was over at my previously mentioned friend's house one evening, and he's like, do you want to pop in a movie? And I was like, absolutely, I want to pop in a movie. And he pops in Pierre LeFou. And from the very beginning, you got this kaleidoscope of colors. You've got this score that's all over the place. You've got this narrative that makes no sense whatsoever. Um, and I was just absolutely transported by the absurdist humor, the political commentary, and the satire going on in this movie. It's one that's really hard to talk about because it doesn't, follow a traditional narrative format um and John luc godard was radically different from all his contemporaries in the way that he approached cinema um because his contemporaries would have been people like louis mal or ingmar bergman who came at filmmaking from a little bit more of a conventional standpoint while they were all breaking rules in certain ways john luc godard was the most chaotic and anti-establishment in my opinion of all these filmmakers at that time and there's just something about that attitude that is baked into Pierre Lefou that I really love. And at the end of the day, it's really just a good time. I is Pierre is is that the movie where the the screenshot that always goes around of the guy smoking and then the girl pulls the cigarette out of his mouth and kisses him and then puts it, it back is, in his yes. mouth. That is what I know about this movie. Is that uh, <laughs> screenshot series that that circulates on the internet? Yeah, I feel like um, I know about you that you love French New Wave, and that is a huge blind spot for me. I've really only ever seen the Four Hundred Blows, which I believe does count into French New Wave. Um, yeah, that's but Truffaut. It's a big blind spot. Truffaut is the, uh, I think, the much more um, widely respected uh, contemporary of Godard. Not to say that Godard's mm-hmm. not respected, he is, but you'll see like quotes online of like uh, Quentin Tarantino praising Godard while trash talking Francois Truffaut, um, and I think like that's caught on a lot with like the film bro communities and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I really just love Jean Luc Godard and his energy. Um, I really love his filmmaking style, um, and my favorite anecdote about Pierre Lefou actually has really nothing do nothing to do with the film, but my buddy who showed it to me. He shows me the cover. He's like, Pierre Lefou, you know what that means? And I was like, no, what's that mean? He goes, Crazy Pete. 
<laughs> and he just Crazy he just gets Pete. a he just gets a real kick out of the fact that it translates into English literally as Crazy Pete. <laughs> I love it. So, so Mackenzie, your turn again. What's your number eight? Here we are. I you know I feel like my top ten uh, doesn't have a lot of like criteria in the movies, but these are all movies that are very very special to me. And this is one, as I mentioned earlier, it was the very first Criterion I ever owned, spine number 1056, Moonstruck, directed by Norman Jewison. Uh, Mm. Growing up, Cher was very important in my household. Uh, My grandmother, who was my best friend and practically raised me, um, she loved Cher a lot. I remember like Cher's book that I now own, um, that I inherited from my grandmother, was like on her bedside table. I would read it all the time, even though I could barely read when I was little. And we always watched the Sunny and Cher show. We always watched Cher movies. Moonstruck was playing around the house a bit, but mostly I loved Mermaids. That was my big Cher movie when I was little. Uh, and but yeah, Cher was just an all-encompassing thing as my as throughout my childhood. And uh, I always listened to her music with my grandma. It was great. And when I was 18, my grandmother passed away. And uh, it was very hard because I was transitioning into college and losing someone that important was really rough at that time. And at that point in my life, I had kind of grown up and not listened to Cher as much um, when I was in high school. And when my grandmother died, um, Cher toured to Nashville. And I promise this gets to Moonstruck eventually. And um, I went to go see her and it really reignited my love for her. And Cher was just this way to feel like I was connected to my grandmother even though I lost her and so I just began to watch more share movies and really engage with share more and I finally watched Moonstruck as an adult and was like oh this is so fun this is so wild she won the Academy Award for this I love it and I, but I did think it was kind of weird John Patrick Shanley's script who I adore he wrote Doubt which is a very famous play and film adaptation among many other things uh it's a weird little script it's a weird little movie with a very with weird performances from Nicolas Cage uh and Academy Award-winning performances from Cher and Olympia Dukakis who I adore um but it's a movie that the more I watch it the more it's grown on me the more I love it the more I, I find new ways to engage with it and more little moments to to love each time and the most recent time I watched this was at the Music Box Theater in Chicago they did a rep screening of it for their share matinees, which was amazing. I got to see mermaids too. And it was a full house, packed house for Moonstruck. <laughs> and it was the most fun I've ever had in movie theater because I came a little late and had to sit in the very back. Um, but I got to see the entire audience laughing and engaging. And as soon as she slapped him, the entire audience erupted with snap out of it all together in this like chorus of share impressions. Um, and it's just a movie that has grown very, very close to my heart. It was the first criterion my partner ever bought me because she knew I loved share and that I liked Moonstruck. And yeah, more than any other movie on this list, it's a movie that I like a little bit more each time I watch it. I find a new way to, to care about it. I find a new way to giggle at it or laugh at it or something different that resonates with me so yeah I don't know Moonstruck's a weird pick but I I think it's so cool that this is in the collection I really do I think it's a weird choice for the Criterion collection but I love that it's there wouldn't have it any other way I I adore Moonstruck uh Moonstruck is one of those movies where when I first saw it again less than a year ago or maybe over a little over a year ago at this point we uh my partner and I watched it on HBO Max and once the uh, credits were rolling, I just sat back with my arms crossed across my chest, big grin on my face and went, I-, I love that. That was so good. That was lovely. That was. And I think I just said to my partner, I was like, movie magic. Oh, my goodness. Wow. 
it is just the most joy inducing film uh that you've talked about so far i i do love it so much yeah i don't think i could say anything better than you could Mackenzie. uh but yeah i agree i think it's just so lovely that films like it are in the collection i Mm -hmm. you know and i think this just kind of goes to what you know you were saying when you were talking a little bit about what the criterion collection is it's like it doesn't have to be all art house it doesn't have to all be indie it doesn't have to all be uh foreign film it can be you know exemplary exemplary romantic comedies like moonstruck i think it's one of the best there's another film on my list that we will get to that I think is a we could definitely talk about that because it's gotten it's a recent edition and it's gotten some flack for its addition to the collection because it's not yes. art housey. Um, but I agree with you. I for one think it is we should be we should be upholding cinema of all kinds. And I do think that though Moonstruck and the film I'll talk about later were these you know Academy Award winning pretty big films at their time. I still think they're important just because they, they were, they were big culturally doesn't mean that they um, shouldn't be saved and restored and uh, collected any less than any other film. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And before I get to my number eight, I'm just going to like say like, that's what we're going to hope to do here is just bring light to every single film in the collection and talk about our love for it our appreciation for it if we don't necessarily love it but like every film that's in the collection 100% deserves to be in the collection there's going to be no film brewery and no snobbery (laughs) here folks get out (laughs) get out well tell me your is it eight or seven what are we on i've already i don't know math already yeah this is gonna be my number eight uh my number eight is going to be spine 701 and uh it is going to be another kind of pillar of a director in the Criterion Collection. It is Ingmar Bergman's persona. Um, his tale of identity and conflict that I'm not going to talk too much about for reasons that will become clear later in the episode. <laughs> but I do want to just take a little bit from the Criterion blurb on persona. They, they talk about how Ingmar Bergman, at this point in his career, it's the 1960s. And he had already conjured many of cinema's most unforgettable images. But with Persona, their exact quote is that he attained new levels of visual poetry. And I think that just speaks so perfectly to what Persona seeks and seeks to do and accomplishes in doing. Uh, it was probably one of the first experimental quote unquote films that I ever saw. And I was just kind of struck by the kind of approach to filmmaking, the way that it was edited, the way that it was structured uh the kind of way that you just watch conversations play out on screen as opposed to being super concerned with just a full-fledged narrative and at the end of it i was just stunned by all the places that it takes you and in subsequent viewings i'm still always just like bewildered by where it goes and how it goes there even though i've seen it many times it never fails to surprise me so yeah um we'll definitely talk a little bit about uh, persona later on but like i don't know if you've seen it yet Mackenzie. if you have any history with bergman um i have seen persona i it, when i was first getting into the collection i got into lynch a lot which we'll talk about later um but when i was getting into lynch persona was like a movie people were always recommending to me <laughs> because i liked uh, mulholland drive and other and you know lynch is more abstract work a lot 
And uh, yeah, I dug it. I think that it's a movie that maybe I wasn't prepared for how it was going to be. And I'm excited to uh, have a chance to watch it again at some point because I, I do think it's a film that like I, w- I was like, whoa, this is like really abstract and really interesting. And it was my first Bergman. And I think even at that point in my life, I wasn't as used to um, non-English language films too. So I was just sort of like, it was just a very like, whoa experience. And so I'm excited to kind of approach it again with a bit more experience under my belt. Um, but I've seen that and I've seen Seventh Seal. I uh, I definitely liked Persona more than Seventh Seal, but I do want to watch more Bergman. And I think this podcast is a great uh, opportunity to, because I mean, like basically all of his movies are in the Criterion Collection. Um, so yeah, Persona's cool. So Mackenzie, what's your number seven? My number seven is is <laughs> what an accent <laughs> is spine number 902 donna deach's desert hearts from 1985 uh when this movie first came to my life this was again uh, my fiance bought me this and moonstruck these were the first criterions i ever owned um when i was first like post-college really like identifying as a lesbian i was sort of trying to seek out lesbian media and was like i want to see movies that have people like me in them and um i had a really good friend who at the time was like, come child, let me show you some of my favorite movies. Uh, and they showed me Bound, which is my favorite movie of all time. They showed me Saving Face, which is a phenomenal film that I would actually love to see in the collection, uh, my truth. And, and most imp- importantly, they showed me Desert Hearts. And I saw it on a lot of listicles of like gay movies with happy endings, which was something I cared a lot about when I was 22. Now I'm 28 and I realize that like, happy ending doesn't equate to a great film and sometimes the sad endings are indeed a part of life even if the film is queer um but this desert hearts is sort of a queer film with a happy ending that was rare for its time coming out in the middle of the 80s it it, it's really a beautiful film i think it was also great for criterion's push to add more female directors to the criterion collection so i think it's really cool that it's there and um, the disc itself has a bunch of phenomenal features featuring the actresses and Donna Deitch, the director, talking about how it kind of felt like a bit of a miracle that they were able to get this movie made that's about these lesbians uh, directed by a lesbian in the middle of the 80s, where obviously the AIDS crisis was ravaging the, the gay community as a whole, especially gay men. And the president at the time was heavily denying and uh his inaction was killing a lot of the community. It was just like, I feel like queer films in the eighties were very hard to get made. And um, especially movies that didn't have trauma in them. This movie is just about a divorcee who's going to Reno to finalize her divorce. And she meets this young artist who sweeps her up into this love affair. Uh, And it's such a tender movie. The cinematography um, is gorgeous by Robert Elswit, and it's it's just this sweeping, lush desert with these pink and purple skies. Um, it's just beautiful. I love the script. Uh, it's based off of a book that I actually think is kind of mid, but I think that Donna Deitch took the best parts from the book and made it into this really beautiful, tender, um, sensual, loving film. And um, it's it's one of those movies I feel like I could just put on every day and I just let it play because it's so calming. It has this gorgeous kind of 50s um, score and soundtrack going through it. It's very dreamy. I think that's sometimes what I like in movies, movies that make me feel very dreamy and sweet. Uh, you know, it has its issues. A lot of people make fun of the very 80s hair in a film that is set in the 50s. But uh, I still love it, even though it has 80s hair. Uh, it's really one of my ultimate um, comfort films. And Donna Deitch, as a lesbian, 
woman film director didn't get to make a lot of movies but this movie has not been forgotten like the criterion collection will ensure that this film will never be forgotten because it is special it's a really special little movie and uh yeah i'm glad that uh it's it's in the collection and it's just one of my faves out of all the films on your list that i have not seen this is probably the one i'm the most excited to see um yeah i i have not seen desert hearts but i am like super stoked to get to see it and hearing you just talk about it now makes me even more excited (laughs) it's a lovely little movie it's really great i think it's it's great i love it so much i desperately want to put a stage adaptation of it together but that's a plan for future mckenzie but present ian what is your number seven my number seven is speaking of films that have been in a way preserved and saved by the criterion is going to be spy number 230. It's Robert Altman's Three Women. And this film would have been all but probably forgotten if it wasn't for the Criterion Collection because it's the only way to get it on home media. Um, mm. If it wasn't for the collection, this film probably would have never come out on VHS or disc or Laserdisc, etc. And it's the most recent addition to my list. I only watched this a couple months ago for the first time. And upon watching it, I was just so enthralled um, it says this in the Criterion blurb, but um, I just find it to be one of the most compelling watches of all time. You cannot take your eyes off of Shelley Duvall and Sissy Spacek. They like command your attention so thoroughly. It's like literally insane. And it's the first Altman that I like, really fell in love with. We were talking a little bit about Robert Altman before recording, and I kind of talked about how I'm somewhat mid to high on The Long Goodbye, and I'm kind of mid on Nashville, but like this just sunk its claws into me it is i don't know what else to say about it other than it's just so compelling like the performances in this are some of the best that i've ever witnessed i knew i loved shelly duvall before watching three women but now i'm convinced that shelly duvall is probably one of my favorite performers of all time (laughs) um this is just one of my favorite pieces of cinema ever and i know that's a little weird to say only after seeing it two months ago but i truly uh, love this thing through and through. It's surreal and it's stunning to like live with. There's really nothing else like it in my personal opinion. And you're going to start to see a trend develop in my upper echelon of films on this list, but it uh, contains an element that I'm really fond of, uh, magical realism. And I won't go too deep into it as if so as to not spoil the film, but there are elements of this like um, kind of crisis of identity that's kind of similar to my previous film on my list, Persona, which is a direct influence on three women. It really dips its toes in the pool of magical realism. And yeah, I love it so much. I am dying to watch this movie. <laughs> it is, it's always a movie, much like Persona, because of my love for Mulholland Drive. Everyone was like, watch my Persona and three women. And it's like, I get it. Women staring at each other. Is it gay? We don't know. But they're staring at each other. Maybe they're the same person. Maybe they're not. I don't know. Which, you know, if that's my genre that people associate with me, I'm fine. <laughs> I'm fine with that. Um, yeah, I'm dying to watch Three Women. And I, I really like Robert Altman. I really loved Nashville. Um, I also really dig The Long Goodbye. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm so, I'm dying to watch Three Women. I can't. I can't believe it. All right, Mackenzie. What's number six for you? Oh, so this is what I was referring to earlier as a film that is recently added to the, I literally, we were putting our top 10 lists together. This got announced February 15th, my birthday. I want to say this is my birthday <laughs> gift from Criterion uh, was spine 1,180 Thelma and Louise Ridley Scott's 1991 
road trip masterpiece uh, got added to the collection and I immediately was like in my top 10. Yes. <laughs> um, this is a movie. I feel like it's also, as I said, come under a little fire for being kind of mainstream. Um, I think that Thelma and Louise, I think that people are divorcing it from its context in a way that like, this was a big deal of a movie in 1991 to show women who were um, abused and wronged by men taking a lot of agency in their lives and the iconic ending, though it rips my heart out every time. And there's also this sense of like, what other way would these women ever have agency over their own lives? Uh, it's really like, I just think it's a masterpiece in feminist cinema. Uh, Wild, it was made by Ridley Scott. <laughs> He's not a director I necessarily consider myself a huge fan of, but I, I do love this movie. And Susan Sarandon and Gina Davis are two of my favorite actresses ever. Uh, I don't remember where I first actually found this movie, but I I just remember, I think I watched it in the last couple of years where I was getting into cinema and instantly loved it, um, instantly really attached to it. And so that's why I had to toss it in here immediately. Um, yeah, every time I watch this movie, it it makes me more sad because the more like I, the more I watch this movie, I don't know, it breaks my heart more every time. I love these characters so much. And every time I see them again, I I, I attach further to Thelma and Louise. And I think it's great. I think more mainstream quote unquote picks like this for the collection are wonderful. I think that like people were mad about Wally, but it's like Wally is such a wonderful piece of Pixar's oeuvre. The director really wanted it. So I'm glad he was yeah. involved with Criterion. It seemed like the director just called him up and was like, can I be in the collection? I think that's please? what happened. Yeah. Um, but I love that. Like, what is wrong with a mainstream pick if it is we are honoring cinema in all of its facets? And um yeah, so I am here to defend Thelma Louise as an addition to the Criterion Collection uh, and just say I think it is, I truly think it is, um, I just think it's a wonderful, you know, temple of feminist cinema for a reason and I'm so glad it's there and yeah, love yeah. Thelma Louise. Yeah, and I will join you in that uh, stance because, you know, while I've not seen Thelma Louise, I'm very familiar with it. It's one of my mom's favorite films. And I think I've just absorbed so much of it through cultural osmosis. And I'm yeah. all for populist cinema being in the Criterion Collection. I'm all for every kind of cinema being in the Criterion Collection, personally. But I'm super excited to get to watch this with you um, and talk about it with you in the future, hopefully. But yeah, no. I, I Yeah, I'm super excited about Thelma Louise and love love your love for it. <laughs> I think you're gonna dig it. I really do. Me too. Oh, what is your next film? All right. So number six is a little bit of a cheat. I'm super <laughs> sorry, um, but I have to talk about these three films because they are just probably so important to my cinematic journey and my cinephile identity. Uh, my next pick is going to be Spy Numbers ninety eight. 278 and 678 and these are uh michelangelo antonioni's loosely connected trilogy of discontent and modernity these films are la note la ventura and le Clice. uh the standout for me here is la note it's the first film from this trilogy that i saw and it's also the first of antonioni's films that i ever saw and it's also the one that lingers with me the most that's not to say that the other ones don't but you really never forget your first, and I'll never forget La Note. Uh, the only flaw with it, in my opinion, is that Monica Vitti is sparsely in it. Although when mm -hmm. she is in it, it is uh, just absolutely captivating. She's probably the most stunning individual to ever grace a film strip, in my opinion. 
<laughs> I'm noticing a trend of me just talking about absolutely stunning women in my films. Uh, hey, I love talking about stunning women. No, no, no hate here. Yeah, it is. I think it's one of the things that makes your movie good. Uh, but this trilogy <laughs> is by far the most heady of my picks and really sums up kind of my pretentious intellectual side. But it largely deals with like bourgeois discontent in modern life. I think there's like a lot of really striking imagery that Antonioni uses uh, to frame Italian uh, architecture and like all the angular lines in Milan and other Italian cities with like the soft and curved bodies of the Italian citizens portrayed on screen, both female and male. Um, But yeah, I just think they're absolutely stunning to look at and live with. They're much more about mood and you really got to vibe with them. And I'm always down to vibe with a Michelangelo Antonioni film. I've watched about six or seven of his films at this point, and he's probably one of my favorite mid-century auteurs. Um, And I'm not even really a film of slow cinema, which his films are usually categorized as, especially these Mm -hmm. three films, uh, because they're really monotonous, and you really have to give them your full attention. They're not like Elevator to the Gallows, which is another mid-century black and white film that you can just kind of put on the background and get the general gist of what's going on these really these films really demand all all the brain processing power that you can muster so yeah i really love them i really love monica vitti i think she's just absolutely elegant and gorgeous uh and gorgeous to watch and yeah i really love these three films so i just kind of had to clump them all together for my uh number six (laughs) pick Mackenzie, what's your number five pick this movie is a movie that, like, if I was ranking, ranking these, I should say, these are all pretty loose. They're not really ranked. They're just, they're movies I love equally. But this might be moving to number one because I did a recent rewatch of this film because I'd only seen it once before putting it on my top ten. And I went, let me double check. And on that second rewatch, I thought, is this my favorite movie ever? Which is something I'm having to deal with now for Spine number 608, 1971 Harold and Maude by Hal Ashby. Uh, this is a weird, weird, weird little movie, and it has much like I forget what film you were mentioning. Sort of just immediately sunk itself into you. Three women. Three women. Um, th- I feel the same way about Harold and Maude. I the first time I watched it, it, it just like dug itself so deep in me that I could not stop thinking about it. And then, um, and I wanted a tattoo immediately <laughs> of a line from this film. And uh, the second rewatch kind of confirmed for me how important it feels to me right now. And I think that your favorite movie can be something that changes as you as you change. And I think mm-hmm. right now, Harold and Mob might be my favorite movie. Uh, it is a film that I think I always was vaguely aware of culturally because it was sort of a joke. It was like this young guy has sex with an old lady. Ha ha ha. How funny is that? Um, and then I watched the movie and I got so angry at every person who's ever made that joke because I thought how, um, idiotically derivative of, of a way to put this beautiful, beautiful movie. I, I first watched it honestly, cause we double featured it with Itumama Tambien, also in the collection, phenomenal film that sort of references Harold and Maude by having two young men also, in, you know, encounter a sexual relationship with an older woman. Yet another film that I think is boiled down to that when it has so much more going on in it. It's a, I think Itamama Tambien's a genius film. Uh, and in that movie, one of the young men has a poster for Harold and Maude in his room. I think Quaron's little wink at the audience. And I thought to mm-hmm. Rachel, I said, let's, let's double feature. Let's put Harold and Maude on. Why not? Um, and yeah, I was so struck by the tone of it is so weird. It is a movie I feel like I cannot recommend to anybody because the whole plot is a young man who 
stages multiple suicides uh, to get the attention of his mother. <laughs> uh, and so he give, he stages very theatrical suicide attempts. So very much trigger warning if you seek this movie out. Um, to try, really try to get the attention of his mother and because he feels it's very loaded. Watch the movie. But he ends up encountering this older woman named Maude who is uh, 80 years old, turning 80. And she has such a lust for life and such a love of nature and the world around her that she pulls him out of this darkness and teaches this this person teaches this young man um i don't know how to appreciate the time we have on this earth and it's it's really such a beautiful little film about these two people who really love each other who are misunderstood on multiple ways and the way they make each other better and the way that this woman who is a ray of sunshine inside of an old woman's body uh brings this young man and for me the viewer out of the darkness they might be existing in uh it's it's really like i i don't know i could cry i really love this movie and i don't know why it just really has has um hit my heart really deeply in a way that i wasn't expecting and it's so weird but i love it it's out of print and i'm gonna hunt down my own copy of it because i i desperately love this movie and um, i'm very excited for us to discuss it one day it's a weird one but i think it is a misunderstood and underrated gem of a film and uh i love that it's in the collection yeah i love that so much and i that's my favorite thing about movies i could see you becoming a little overwhelmed just talking about it and i think it's i think it's just the most beautiful things about these moving pictures these stories uh how they can impact you and stick with you and change you and yeah i just think that's so beautiful I was watching it the other night and my partner Rachel was doing a very fun Shakespeare reading in the other room with with some friends and Rachel walks out in like a great mood and I'm on the couch just weeping and I'm like I am not where you're at right now uh (laughs) it was great uh yeah wow love this movie yeah but hey speaking of loving movies Ian what is your next pick my next pick is also one that makes me cry a lot. Um, my next pick <laughs> is 681, Francis Ha from Noah Baumbach and Greta Gerwig. This is the first Criterion film I probably saw unknowingly. So no idea what the Criterion collection is in 2012, but Greta Gerwig pops up on the iTunes homepage for movies. And it's probably discounted because I'm in my teen years and I don't have much money. But it looks cute. It's in black and white, and I fancy myself a film lover at that time. So I go ahead and purchase it, and it immediately becomes one of my favorite films of all time. And so when I'm putting together a list of my favorite Criterion films, of course I have to put in Francis Ha. It is just so comforting to me. And my top five are mostly going to be films that I find just absolutely comforting. I, you know, obviously I focused a lot on the art form in my lower half and there's a lot of films that i respect while do while i deeply love them uh there's a lot of just kind of highfalutin stuff down there but here we're just getting to like the real like potatoes um what's the <laughs> phrase i want to use the real you know you know what i mean like comfort, comfort we're getting to like the food, real yeah yeah we're getting to like the real comfort food of my uh my movie loving and the creative marriage between Noah Baumbach and Greta Gerwig is probably one of my favorite contemporary cinematic combinations. And I know they're partners in real life, but I'm not even talking about that. I just think that they are perfectly made for each other when it comes to telling stories. 
they have like such a unique style of approaching dialogue and i think that francis ha is the perfect synthesis of all their best tendencies and this is not in the collection but i recently just watched one of their other collaborations that stars greta gerwig and it was my second favorite first time viewing of last month and that was mistress america so if you like francis ha i fully encourage all of our listeners to go outside the collection and unearth mistress america it's absolutely delightful and it's very very similar to francis ha but this is just one of my favorite character studies i find greta to be so charismatic as this 20 something adrift in new york city which is basically how i feel all the time even though i don't live in new york city um but yeah the uh sequence where francis is running through the streets of new york dancing to modern love always makes me a puddle of tears i just i am <laughs> reduced to my basic my basic emotions in that moment i i love this film so much and i think it just is one of those more popular films in the criterion collection that i'm so happy is in the criterion collection all that comes with being out of the collection i'm so happy that they've put francis holland there and it will remain there forever i you know i love i love a greta gerwig I do. I do love Greta Gerwig. I love her as a director. Lady Bird is one of the like films that is closest to my heart, maybe more than most movies in the world. Um, and I'm, I'm very recent to discovering Baumbach as a director. I did watch Francis Ha recently and also really liked it. I watched Marriage Story recently and I was mad that I liked it because I was like, oh, it's so easy to like Marriage Story, but damn, is it really, really good. Uh, and I also <laughs> liked White Noise. That was my first Baumbach. Uh, and I actually dig I, I, I dig it, even though I know it's more divisive um, with his film. So, yeah, and I know I know there's like more of him in the collection. I'd really be into watching more Bombach, but I'm also there for anything Greta. Lady Bird in the collection win. I mean, really, I'm I'm always there for whatever Greta is doing. My most anticipated film of 2023 is Barbie. Barbie, baby. Let's go, <laughs> Mackenzie. What is your number four? My number four is spine number 1012. I'm in the 1000s a lot. I feel like a little poser because all my yeah, are semi-recent. Yeah. Oh, me too. Don't worry about it. Um, me too. Uh, Pedro Almodovar's 1999 opus, All About My Mother, his film about mothers and women of all kinds, this love letter to femininity. Um, I don't remember what made me watch this last year, almost a full calendar year ago. I looked it up, but I immediately was so struck by this film it was the first Almodovar I'd ever watched I immediately fell so in love with it I was so fascinated by how untethered Almodovar was by representation which I know sounds weird but I feel like um, nowadays queer creators are almost burdened by the need to be representative of the community of some way and I'm not saying I want queer creators to go out and make like awful whatever it's it's very complicated but i think that there's room for nuance with queerness and that i don't always want to see perfect queer characters i want to see like excuse my language fucked up people that are dealing with hard shit and like really don't know what they're doing in their lives and um there's you know some obviously casting issues i think with all about my mother that i would like to change if i could with the way um he doesn't cast trans actors in these trans characters but i find the characters to be so fascinating some of the most interesting um, trans characters I've ever seen are in this film and the, the way these characters intersect with each other they're so complicated and so real and so beautiful to me and I was just so struck by how I feel like Almodovar's love of women bleeds out all over this film 
um, and his relationship to femininity as a gay man, I think, is so prevalent in this film and in a lot of his works, really. But this was the first one I watched, and I, I, I don't know. It really struck me as the story was so complicated. I love the melodrama. I love the way it looks. I mean, Almodovar's production designs are always so gorgeous because they're these gorgeous lush colors and this beautiful cinematography. The shot of uh, Cecilia Roth below the image of the actress playing Blanche, the kind of outside the theater of Streetcar Named Desire is one of my favorite shots in the history of cinema. And uh, yeah, I just, I had never really seen a queer film that dealt with sexuality and identity in understated ways. Like these characters were just queer, but like the things happening to them were more important than their identities. It was, I was the first time I'd ever seen a film that like the queerness was so baked into the film. It did not have to be the plot, if that makes sense, which I love a queer story about like figuring yourself out and about your queerness. But I was really refreshed to see a film where these characters are queer, but they're dealing with my lover's on drugs and my child just died and I'm dealing with HIV and I'm dealing with my lover leaving me alone and like, and my daughter and I don't get along. There was more important things than, than discussions on um, identity and because it's just so innate with the characters. I just never, never seen a queer film like that before. And it really, it really blew my mind. So I, I, I love it. I love Almodovar. I've watched a lot of his films since then. I still have a couple more to go. Um, but he's one of my favorite directors. I just think he is weird and lovely uh, and so gay in the best way. And uh, all about my mother is just, it's just, it's a really gorgeous little special movie. It's, it's a little, it's a little sticky at times, but I, I still really, really love it. Yeah. I, I watched this after reading your review of it. That's what pushed me over the edge. I, and I think people will come to learn this throughout listening to the podcast, but I buy a lot of Criterion discs and they just sit on my shelf for months. And All About My Mother was one of those that just sat on my shelf for months, and then I read your review of it on Letterboxd, and I was like, oh, this I gotta see, and I saw it, and I also was like immediately fell in love with it, and I I love what you said about uh, queerness being like as a matter of fact in a mold mm-hmm. of our films. Uh, my first experience with him was his uh, most recent film, Parallel Mothers, in which yes. queerness is depicted in that but it's never really actually a focal point of the story whatsoever. It's really just a matter of fact. It's like Penelope Cruz's character is bisexual, and it's just like, oh, yeah, she's bisexual. Why'd you bring it up? Like, (laughs) MBD, no big deal. Um, So, yeah, no, I I think that this is probably uh, one of his best films, and I've seen plenty at this point. But, yeah, I think it's a great pick on your list. And not to worry about being in the thousands a lot, except for one pick. The rest of mine are definitely going to be in the thousands. We love it. We love it. Well, what is your number four? Spy number 1157. So that is going to be one of the most recent additions to the collection. And I kid you not, I was frothing at the mouth to get my hands on this one. I was so excited for 1966 Daisies to be released into the collection. This is probably the most bonkers weirdo pick on my list it is a experimental film from the uh czech new wave so from the mid 60s by a filmmaker named i hope i get this right vera chitlova and i'm gonna read this little tiny bit from the criterion blur because i just think it sums up the film so perfectly 
They say, quote, the most defiant provocation of the Czechoslovakian new wave, an exuberant call to rebellion aimed squarely at those who uphold authoritarian oppression in any form, unquote. I find this just to be so much fun. I am smiling for its entire 76 minute runtime. And it's not a happy film, but it has some of the most luminous and playful cinematography. And there's like a delightful nihilism in its darkness. Um, Essentially what it is, is just an hour and 15 minute chaotic feminist romp about these two women who go through the city conning rich old pervert men and doing whatever the fuck they want um i don't think i nor anyone else in the world has ever truly seen anything like daisies it is completely its own thing uh there's just not anything else like it like beyond its hyperbolic fun i think it's one of the most intelligent indictments of patriarchy but you can just tell that like Chitlova and her stars are like having a lot of fun with like female stereotypes and upending those and subverting them to kind of show how utterly ridiculous like male assumptions are of women and also like their expectations of women to like expect because like you pay for dinner that a woman is going to quote unquote put out for you is like just like probably the most mild thing that's like satirized in this film. But on top of that, it's just like, it really just uh, is one of those things where I'm somebody who like loves the craft of film a lot. Story gets me and it's usually like one of my biggest priorities. But like, if I can like look at something and just have fun with how it was made, that's enough for me. And there's like constantly changing film stocks and daisies. There's like innovative like use of like cutouts. It's like, I don't think they're using green screen in daisies, but it's like these like mind-blowing special effects for like this incredibly low budget Czech film from the 1960s where like one person's head is detached from their body in like a in like not like a violent way but like it's just like a special effect and it's just mind-blowing to watch even though it's like not really great it's just super exciting and fun and like I said I'm just smiling during this whole thing yeah uh of all the films on my list this is the one I'm most excited for you to see I am very excited. I remember when this was added to the collection and I was seeing all these videos of it and I was like, what is this movie? And, you know, I'm always interested in feminist cinema and I love women and I'm down to watch this. And I, I, I keep seeing more people watch it. Like weirdly, I've seen so many logs of it from our friends recently. And I'm like, what is this movie? I want to watch it. And I just found out like two days ago it was 76 minutes and I went, squeeze me. Uh, So yeah, I would love to watch Daisies very soon. We're nearing the end of it, Mackenzie. We're in the top three. So these are <laughs> these are our top three films from the Criterion Collection. Now, I know yours are like loosely ranked, but my top three yeah. I, are truly my top three. But please go ahead and kick us off with our final three. What's number three for you? I think this is a bit of a weird choice. Um, this is spine number 300. Wes Anderson's The Life Aquatic with Steve Sissou. Mm-hmm. Um I would, I feel like based on what I've seen, I think it's like his most divisive movie. I feel like The Life Aquatic is very much a love it or hate it kind of movie. Like it's not a movie I see many Wes Anderson heads be mid on. Like it's a movie I see, I see like either you, you like it a lot or you love it like me or you fucking hate this movie. (laughs) Like I've seen so many people that really hate The Life Aquatic and I get it because I think that it is it is it feels like so different than the rest of his films i last year late last year or maybe end of 2021 i went on a wes anderson journey it's like okay he has 
a good chunk of films, but I, I knocked them all out in a week and I watched all of his movies. I think in terms of, I think it's kind of cliche to say, or at least it was for a while, but he is one of my favorite directors. I think in terms of consistency with like, I genuinely, I like all but like one of his movies. The one I don't like is I think my controversial hot take because I hate Moonrise Kingdom, but mm. I, I, which I know a lot of people love and I totally get it. It grew on me. Um, it but, took a while, but it grew on me. Maybe I'll give another chance. Maybe this will be the podcast I give it another maybe, chance with. Maybe. Um, but yeah, I watched all of his movies and The Life Aquatic snuck up on me so much because I remember watching it in the middle of the day and I will not lie, I was like fully on my phone and I don't remember why. And I had this movie playing and then there was a part that I will not spoil if you've not seen the film, but it is a very um, tonally different part near the end of the film that is a huge, very emotional, very uh, upsetting part of the movie that it like I began to see it happening and I just like put my phone down and I was like what and it I it it hit me so hard emotionally that for like the remaining 15-20 minutes of the film I was just sitting on my couch just sobbing and I could not believe that a Wes Anderson movie which is it's not, he's not a director I, I I think of that gets he has a couple moments each film I think that are these beautiful emotional cores I think he's a much more emotional director than people give him credit for and I think that The Life Aquatic is his most emotional movie. I think he deals with very hard, intense, um, complicated emotions more than any of his other films in this one. And I think that's why it resonates with me the most. Because Steve Zissou is a very complicated, messy, uh, mean-spirited character at times. And yet he's so fascinating to watch and watching the way he interacts with the people around him. Uh, and that ending got me so hard that as soon as my fiance came home, I was like, I need to show you this movie. And we watched it twice in one day and I sat and I eyes peeled the screen and it was a movie much like Harold and Maude has been recently, but this is like last year's time where it sunk immediately into the core of my heart and it became like my favorite movie instantly. And I've watched it like six times or something in the last couple of years. Uh, I got to see it in theaters a couple months ago. And I loved it. I, I just, it's a weird movie. Again, I think it is, it, it sticks out for me from Anderson's normal fare because it is, it's, it's complicated. It's weird. It, it, it's, it's kind of goes to darker places than some of his films tend to do. My favorite run of Wes Anderson is the three movie run that is Tenenbaums, Steve Zissou, and Darjeeling Limited. Those are my three favorite Wes Anderson films. I love most of them, obviously, but um, any of those I think I could put in here. Um, to my top 10 but steve Zissou, in all of its weirdness and flaws uh it is my favorite it's my favorite wes anderson it's a really special movie to me it i don't know i don't know why it just really it really really cuts to the core and um the last scene in the submarine if you haven't seen it you don't know but if you know you do know um I could just like sit and resonate on that. There was a time where Rachel played the song in an attempt to make me happy. The song that plays in that scene. And it was a sense memory. And I began to just start falling and I was like, turn it off, turn it off. Uh, so this is another movie I cry a ton to. Um, I'm rambling now, but yeah, I love the life no, of it's, Steve's too. It's a, it's a movie worth rambling about. It's also my favorite Wes Anderson film. And I couldn't agree with you more. I don't think I knew that. No, it's my favorite Wes Anderson film. I also view it as his most personal film. I think it's his most complex film. And I also think it's the best utilization ever of Bill Murray, largely because he is playing like a cartoon version of himself. Um, <laughs> I think it's one of Owen Wilson's best performances. I think it's one of Kate Blanchett's best performances. And it's not his best performance, but Willem Dafoe steals the show every time he's on screen in this film. 
But yeah, no, I think he's working through a lot of his daddy issues, which are very prevalent on screen in every single one of his films. Uh, but yes, yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I think it's a brilliant movie. It's a five star movie in my book. And it's yeah, it's 100 percent my favorite West movie. I did not know that about you. And that makes me so happy that I've learned it live on air. <laughs> this is your favorite. No, I Rachel got me a mug that has uh, Willem Dafoe on it that says, thanks a lot for not picking me. Which is uh, one of my favorite lines he does in that. I'm sorry, I, also I, just, think... I love that movie. <laughs> it's so good. I also think that one day I will write, I will make a video essay about this, but there are little queerisms in a lot of Wes Anderson's films. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of weird, like, everyone's a little bi in this movie in a way yeah. that is so funny. Where when, when Jeff Goldblum says, like, oh well, God. I'm half gay. And then Bill Murray goes, supposedly we all are. I'm like, or maybe <laughs> just you two want to kiss each other. Have you thought about that? <sighs> um great and also i want to call out bud court my king is also oh, in this and he? he's in harold and mod so he is the that one actor that appears he's in literally everything on earth but he is the one actor on my list that appears twice so just shout out to bud court uh I just, i'm a i'm sure a lot of our listeners will also identify as this but i'm a huge blankie i listen to the blank check podcast and mm. i re-listen to their heat episode like once every couple of months because it's so funny but it brought to my attention Bud Court's in Heat. What? He's the diner owner. I've never seen That's... Heat. I need to watch. Oh, this okay. Now. Well, first of all, Bud you Court. need to. First of all, you need to see Heat. Uh, Criterion, add Heat to the podcast so I can force Mackenzie to watch Heat. Um, but yeah, no, Bud Court's in Heat randomly. He's also in But I'm a Cheerleader as well. Like, he what? just shows up and he's in Coyote Ugly, a movie that only I like. Like, truly, he is in the most random movies ever, and I love him so much. Guy works. He works. The man stays employed. Um, but <laughs> not to talk about Bud Courtney further, but Ian, what is your number three? My number three is something that is probably super popular with our listeners, super popular popular with you, I know. It's spy number 1034. It is Celine Sciamma's exquisite period romance, Portrait of a Lady on Fire from 2019. Uh, secretly or maybe unsecretly, one of the best years in contemporary cinema. <laughs> but um, like I said, I came to this a little bit late because when this was coming out, I was not really watching movies and I definitely wasn't watching foreign films. Um and I was telling you this a little bit off mic uh, recently, but it didn't really give me the immediate whiplash that it gave a lot of people upon a first viewing. But the more that I sat with Portrait of a Lady on Fire and the more that I thought about it, the more devastated I became. And also the more kind of uh, kinship I felt with Celine Sciamma as to how she sees the world, this tender, mm-hmm. sad place, yet filled with like these moments where we can resist and find hope. Um, she's since become one of my favorite filmmakers, uh, a film that got announced right when your beloved, um, Thelma Louise got announced. Petite Maman is one of my favorite films of all time. It's as of this recording, it's sitting in my four favorites on Letterboxd. I love that film. I just got to show Frankie, my partner, it for the first time recently, and she really liked it. And that made my heart happy. Uh, but I'm not talking about Petite, but I'm not talking about Petite Maman, um, what really strikes me about Portrait of Lady on Fire is really, truly everything about it. Um, but what initially stuck out to me and still kind of lingers with me is that 
Giyama has like a really unique way of crafting worlds. She world builds in period France or in modern day France, like a sci-fi writer might world build the outer rims of the galaxy. And she (laughs) is not going to tell you in dialogue or in exposition, everything that you need to know about the world that you're going to be living in for an hour or two, but she just kind of lets it envelop you. And I thought, you know, the more that I've been watching movies, the more I realize that's a really hard thing to do. And she is such a craftsperson at just putting you into a setting and an environment and letting it kind of acclimate to where you're at. Like she doesn't really, it's, it's weird. She doesn't like ask you to come to her films. She brings her films to you and meets you where you are. I know that sounds like impossible. Like she's made a film that's on a disc that is, you know, been made and you're coming to it. But like, I just feel like her stories are so good at just meeting you at where you're at. They're not like other films where you have to be in the right mood for them. You kind of alluded to this either on mic or off mic when talking about Wong Kar Wai. You kind of have to be in the mood for his films or at least some of them. I feel like I could put on a Celine Sciamma film anytime and no matter what state I'm in, it'll either bring me to a better one if I'm sad or it will just accentuate one if I'm good even though Portrait of a Lady on Fire is a very devastating film, it's also a very comforting film to me. Um, so yeah, I mean, now I'm rambling. You ramble about Life Aquatic, <laughs> I'll ramble about Portrait, but I just adore her work and I can always rely on her uh, to give me solace and a safe space in a world that is increasingly uh, sad and terrifying. Portrait is like one of my favorite films, but also Celine Sciamma is without a doubt one of my favorite filmmakers, if not my favorite filmmaker. So. That's my number three. I think she's absolutely one of the greatest filmmakers we have working right now. And I think that on another watch, Portrait could easily enter my top 10 only because I've only watched it once. And it was like, I was telling you this off mic. It was like the week everything shut down for the pandemic was like the week I watched Portrait. And I have yet to watch it since, which feels like a sin as a gay woman that I have not watched Portrait (laughs) every year. Uh, I could possibly watch it. And so I'm so excited to hopefully have an excuse soon to watch it on this show. Um, I think Petit Maman is one of my favorite films of the decade so far. Just a glorious piece of, there was an amazing review I read about that film. I know we're not talking about Petit Maman, but it was, I think <laughs> so this, this goes across Celine Sciamma's films where they, they wrote about, about Petit Maman. Celine Sciamma tells a more effective, beautiful and cohesive story in 76 minutes. Yet another very short film than mm. most filmmakers could do in their entire lifetimes over hours and hours and hours and hours of film at their disposal um she just has such a penchant for filmmaking and storytelling that is so gorgeous and i really yeah i think she's one of the greatest auteurs we have living right now truly and i want to see her make a hundred thousand more movies yeah paul thomas anderson take that just kidding he's one of my favorites as well (laughs) uh mckenzie it's one of my boys yeah mckenzie what's your number two my number two is a film that i think is quite honestly um, one of the greatest artistic achievements ever put on film in the history of movies. Uh, it's a big thing to say, but I, it's fine. Number 44, 1948's The Red Shoes by Palin Pressburger. Yeah. It is just one of the greatest artistic achievements in the entire world. I could not believe my eyes when I first watched this movie a couple of years ago. I My eyes were popping out of my head. I was like, how is it possible that a movie is this 
incredible, this beautiful, I mean, everyone talks about it, but the centerpiece of the ballet in the middle of the film is the most jaw-dropping thing I've ever seen in a movie ever. It is it is so gorgeous. I love Technicolor films and I love the way Powell and Pressburger direct and create visuals on screen. It's 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 truly mind-blowing. I'm absolutely going to use this podcast as an excuse to watch more Powell and Pressburger because uh, <laughs> I have a couple sitting on my shelf that I need to break into. But The Red Shoes is just phenomenal. It is, I think it, it is just, I, I do love that Criterion says that the dance sequence is an unforgettable hallucinatory central dance. Uh, and it, it is a gorgeous restoration. I mean, it, there's a great video on the disc of Martin Scorsese, I believe going through what they had to do to get the Technicolor. They had to basically restore each strip of the three strip Technicolor individually. Uh, and the amount of work that's gone into this film to make it look as gorgeous as it does. I think that also the red shoes is just a phenomenal example of the amazing work Janice films does with Criterion, the amazing work that these film restoration artists do, it, it is just dazzling. If you have not seen The Red Shoes, you need to see The Red Shoes instantly. Turn this podcast off. Come back to it later. Go watch The Red Shoes right now. Um, it's it's the classic story of the tortured artist, the obsessed artist. And uh, I, not to plug myself, I'm really proud of my review on Letterboxd. I wrote about it that, you know, it, it really has something really important to say and interesting to say about the way we expect artists to die for art. Um, it's an all-consuming type of thing to dedicate your life to. I was, you know, I, I, I did art for a very long time. I went to school for theater. I understand what it feels like to feel consumed by this thing that once gave you joy. And the it's just such a phenomenal movie. I Like, when I think about the effects they were able to pull off in 1948, it just blows my mind. I don't know. I, I feel like too many words have been said about the red shoes, but here's some more. It's perfect. It's it's maybe one of the greatest movies ever made. Yeah. I mean, it's the it's the other film besides In the Mood for Love that I omitted from my list because you included it on yours. It was the one of the first couple of films I thought of because it is. It's just a crowning cinematic achievement. There's nothing else like it. And it's, you know, I think about this all the time when I go into films from the 40s, any film really mm. before the 50s. And it's like, eh all right, got to check a box. <laughs> this is going to suck. And more often than not, and definitely when the film's from that time period that's in the collection, I'm like, holy fucking shit. Like, this is amazing. <laughs> and that was my experience with the Red Shoes. I just put it on on a rainy afternoon in bed, lazing around with Frankie. Um, and we both were just like, whoa, this is exquisite. This is wild. And it's absolutely entertaining. Yeah, I... I mean, everybody go read Mackenzie's review. And also, if you haven't paused the podcast yet to go watch it, please do. We will be here when you get back, we promise. But yeah, it's just, it's undoubtedly one of the best movies ever made in the Criterion Collection or not. Yes. And, you know, one of my goals with this podcast is to get you watching more old Hollywood movies with me. Because <laughs> uh, there's, a, there's a lot of really great ones in the collection. Yeah. And so that's one of my little goals is I'm going to... I'm going to be like, I'm going to get Ian on a Cary Grant movie with yeah. me. <laughs> I'm ready. I like, I like Cary Grant and I am not opposed to old Hollywood, but I, in concept, I am not a fan of older comedies. I will say that. That is like a, that is a stance I, I do wish, have. I wish there were more movies featuring my main man, Bogey, uh, but mm -hmm. sadly only a movie I'm kind of mid on. <laughs> in the, actually, In a Lonely Place it's is a, a wonderful movie. I was I just about to say, really In the Lonely Place is one of my favorite bogeys and it's in the, the collection. Lonely Place is 
great. High Sierra, yeah. I'm like, eh, on, but yeah. in a lonely place. That's like peak bogey right there. But going away from bogey, Ian, what is your number two? So my number two, we're going to keep on with the color theme of red. It is spy number 590 uh, from Christoph Kiowalski, one of his three colors films. It is three colors red. The final entry in the trilogy and this was like a late bump up. It was like originally number five or six on my list, but I rewatched it in preparation for talking with you. And I immediately bumped it up to number two. Cause I just, I find this movie to be so comforting. Um, it is literally like my warm blanket film. Um, number one will probably also be considered a warm blanket film for me, but like, it's not nearly as like quote unquote cozy as three colors mm-hmm. red. I just think that this is so deeply moving and I love what it's talking about. The themes of like what we owe each other as humans and what we owe ourselves as individuals. I just, yeah, I think there's so much about connections that are forged and connections that are forced within three colors red. Mm. You know, I, I'm a self-proclaimed lover of soft films and three colors red is a soft film. If there ever was one, I love movies Mm -hmm. that are about the human experience yeah i mean i feel like i've been a little ineloquent throughout our discussion you've got these great little diatribes about the films you love and here i am just being like "Ah, i just love it so much but yeah three (laughs) colors red is like something that i continuously put on and i rewatch it and i rewatch it and i'm never fully sure what it's about each time i watch it i come away with a different perspective i come away with a different conclusion I was rereading a letterbox review of mine from a few months ago. And my conclusion at the end of that watch was that this whole film was about morality and what is truly right or wrong. And this time watching it, I was really focused in on the like anti-romance of it all. And I'd steal this term from a Roger Ebert review from the time in which he called three colors red an anti-romance but there's this romantic connection that develops between the two lead characters, an older retired judge who's bitter with the world and a young naive fashion model who's very optimistic and, um, you know, not to repeat myself, but naive and just kind of their connection that forges and the bonds that they share through these kind of trials and tribulations that I really don't want to go deep too deep into. Cause I'll have a lot to say about the film when we finally do cover it inevitably. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's really about a story about being a human being and about connecting with other human beings and also about connecting with your dogs. There's a lot about, uh, there's a <laughs> lot about dogs in here, which really struck me on this most recent viewing, uh, because there's the, the, there's the old adage that man is dog's best friend, that dog is man's best friend. And, uh, that really stuck out to me this time. There's just so many layers to like relationships, whether they be human or, um, pet and pet owner yeah i i I relate to it so deeply um and if 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 it wasn't for my number one film on this list it would probably be the film i relate to the most but as we will come Mm -hmm. to see in just a moment there is a character at the center of my number one film who is a scathing indictment of myself but that will have to wait while you Mackenzie, share with us your top number one pick from your top 10 criterions list (laughs) i wonder what it could be 
Yeah, I know. I presume a lot of the people that are listening to this are people who know us, people who are our friends, and anyone who knows me knows probably my favorite Criterion film. Say it with me, everyone. Mulholland Drive. Uh, It's fine number 779. David Lynch, obviously. He's my boy. Um, A love story in the city of dreams is what Criterion calls it, which is so hilarious to me. Um, I... David Lynch was absolutely the first like auteur I got into. The first, and whenever I think of auteur, I define that as a director who has a breadth of work, you know, at least a couple of films with a singular sort of style or um, aesthetic that they have to them that is, you know, I mean, I feel like more than most directors in the world, Lynch is used as an adjective more than any other with Lynchian. Anything that's weird is Lynchian to people, which I disagree <laughs> with um, because I think that there are specifics that make him Lynchian. Um, but yeah, he's a weird guy, but I do love his films. And Mulholland Drive was the first of his movies I ever watched. I really don't remember why I put it on. I remember distinctly I was sitting in the bedroom by myself, just like trying to find a movie to watch on my laptop on my laptop and i think i had heard of Mulholland drive because i i think look i follow a lot of lesbians on twitter i think someone had posted like the scene of betty uh and oh my gosh i can't even remember her name and it's my favorite movie of of naomi watson laura herring um making out and i was like well it looks gay i'll watch it and that was how i came to this how silly is that i had never really heard of mulholland driver david lynch and i was like this movie looks gay i guess i'll watch it which i think is where i don't know that's so silly and very pedestrian of me but i was like immediately like what the fuck am i watching (laughs) kind of instantly and i didn't find it as confusing as i think a lot of people i think people get very obsessive with like figuring it out solving the puzzle and that's just not i think how lynch wants people to approach his his work and um but i did feel confused i was like that was kind of confusing but cool i like it and i immediately this was before i kind of knew that lynch's thing was that he doesn't necessarily want you to find the answers he wants you to feel the films so I was very not in the know about how he is as a filmmaker. So I did Google, what is Mahal and Drive about? <laughs> and I watched a movie, a video, a great video um, about it. And I was like, whoa, whoa, that's what's happening. And, you know, with Lynch, there was no definitive answer to his films. But I listened to one person give a answer. And it was really, really well thought out. It was really, really well researched. It was really, really articulate. And to me, that blew my mind open on how much you can think about a film which I know sounds very silly but it was the first time I thought like wow you can really like dissect and pull layers and everything can have a meaning if you let it have a meaning Mm -hmm. you know the blue key what is the blue key why does it connect to the blue box like it was the first time that I really was like wow like movies um, outside of the surface level of their plot, you know, I, it was right when I was getting into films. It was really the first time I thought, like, wow, there's, I can find so much meaning in every little thing. And I rewatched it almost immediately uh, with this sort of ideas, these ideas in mind. And then it it, it got deeper and deeper. And it, and Mulholland Drive just quickly became a movie I became obsessed with because I loved thinking about it so much. I loved that he was a director that forced me to sit and think about his movies and um i think mullen holland drive is his magnum opus in my opinion i think it's lynch's greatest movie i know that's controversial we'll get into eventually with my co-host with a one-star rating on letterboxd i have seen of of my Mm. dear mulholland drive yeah he just sort of became my guy became one of my favorite filmmakers i dove into a lot of his work and um 
I love that he's just this like grandpa who delivers the weather reports. Like I like Lynch as a person as well. And um, yeah, I, I, I just, I'm a big, I'm a big Lynch head. It feels right to have Mulholland Drive at the helm of my criterion list as it is my favorite David Lynch movie. Um, but yeah, I did, I did just kind of call you out. I'm excited yeah. to maybe make you revisit Mulholland Drive if you'd be willing to for me. I am 100% willing to, and it's something I've been meaning to do. Um, I'm not. I'm never tied <laughs> down to a one star review. It's just I could have been in a bad headspace. It could have not met me where I needed. Yeah. I could have uh, could have met me at a bad time in my life. Um, I am fully prepared to have my mind changed. I do think I do think I'll like it actually because I think it's weird that I have Persona and Three Women regarded so highly while not having. Mulholland Drive regarded so highly as of right now and I've come to other Lynch work like Lost Highway and Blue Velvet and I've really loved them. Lost Highway is a four-star film for me on Letterboxd and Blue Velvet's a five-star film uh, for me. I I think he's great and I've really come around on him. I just I think I might have been a little, little bit jarred initially watching Mulholland Drive. I don't know if that's the Makes best sense. Lynch film to enter with even though I think that's what you entered with I guess is what you're saying. Yeah somehow. <laughs> yeah. And finally, drum roll, Ian, what is your number one movie? I'm so glad you asked, Mackenzie. Uh, I think my number one movie, kind of like how your number one is almost painfully obvious uh, and (laughs) emblematic of who you are as a film lover. Mine is also painfully obvious and emblematic of who I am as a film lover. My number one is spy number 1,132, so a very recent addition to the collection and another one that I'm super excited to see get added. It is uh, 2021's and Yoho. It is Yohim Trier's uh, 2021 film and his third entry in the Oslo trilogy, The Worst Person in the World. And it's really hard to even talk about this film because it is, without any doubt, my favorite movie ever made. I remember seeing the trailer for this before Spencer when I saw that in theaters, the uh, Diana story, uh, the uh, Kristen Stewart Diana film and i was just immediately taken aback by just the trailer i was like immediately obsessed with it and was like i gotta see this and so finally when it came to my local indie art house theater the granberry which is sadly now defunct i made it like my top priority to go and see it and yeah it was just an immediate lock for like best film ever for me i was just transfixed by the realism also like the magical realism in the film there's that sequence where Julie's running through the city and time has just frozen around her. Um, yeah, it, it's such a lovely film. And I don't think I've really ever identified with a character more in the history of cinema than I do with Julie. Uh, for all like the, you know, beautiful things that she embodies and all the kind of flaws that she embodies. I love her passionate nature. I love her flakiness and even her narcissism. Uh, unfortunately, I think this is the film I've logged the most on Letterboxd, and I don't think I'm ever going to tire of coming back to it. A while back, I wrote a piece for a local film publication of the Fort Worth Film Club, and I kind of wrote about how this film really gets me thinking about the films that I love now and how I hope that I will continue to love them for the rest of my life. And what I think makes The Worst Person in the World so unique in this respect is that at this point, I really identify with Julie, this woman adrift in her 20s moving into her 30s i'm about to enter my late 20s i'm going to turn 26 soon um but eventually i'm probably not going to identify with that character as much but what makes this film so unique is there's this story of the most important person in her life oxel 
who's her boyfriend at the beginning of the film and their relationship changes and evolves as the film goes on but he's also a very central character and I do see myself somewhat identifying with him as I move through my own life through my 30s and into my 40s hopefully I don't identify with him in all the ways imaginable because there are some certain (laughs) upsetting and problematic elements of his character but yeah it's just one of those films that has so much nuance and so much depth to it even though at first glance it might be like a surface level romantic comedy but there's a lot more underneath that makes it such a enjoyable and deeply personable film to me it's a great movie i watched it twice in one day the first time i saw it and i haven't watched it since so i'd love to watch it again for this podcast and um yeah it's just a brilliant it's a special little movie i mean that scene of the as you mentioned the running through the streets is just like a all-timer of all time scene in all cinema it's really beautiful and uh yeah it's a special movie it really is yeah no yeah no i'm really excited for the inevitable episode fun thing about this top 10 list is they're all inevitable episodes right yeah baby we're gonna do all these we gotta do them they're our favorites yeah super excited we'll discover new loves along the way maybe we'll watch movies Mm -hmm. that we don't seriously connect with but that are important for us to watch But yeah, no, I'm super excited to be getting down this journey with you. So folks, that's our top tens list. Uh, Mackenzie, do you have any final thoughts about your list? No, I mean, you know, I, there, there's a lot of weirdies on there. And by weirdies, I mean films that maybe many people wouldn't consider the greatest films ever, or even the greatest films in the collection, nowhere close, but they're all films that are very special to me in some way or another. And I feel like um, altogether, they make up a big, piece of my soul and a big piece of why I love Criterion and if I I don't know I'm proud of my list I I feel like it represents me within the tapestry that is the Criterion collection uh these films are these films feel like mine what about you no I mean I agree with you fully uh all my films I think they say something really unique about my personality and worldview whether that be like my sexual identity my feelings about consumption or my reverence for the environment like there's like all these little specific things that I take out of these films and like put into my personality almost like every film on that list that every film on my list is like such a huge part of me and this is like just one of the many things that I love about film as I've previously mentioned during our conversation and I think the Criterion Collection is just full of films like this and it has something that like everyone can come to and i think it really embodies like what i truly love about cinema like how how films can like take on meaning and impact in our lives in like super super unique and fun ways that about does it for us on the first episode of the criterion connection mackenzie are we ready to tell people what we're doing next week i am so ready you have picked our first movie i'm picking our second But please let me know how we are starting this journey. I am choosing from my top 10 list, Ingmar Bergman's masterpiece, Persona, from 1966, spine number 701. We're going to be going hard up front. We're going to be diving into a (laughs) filmmaker who is uh, overwhelmingly represented in the Criterion Collection. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're going to be starting off with one of his best films, in my personal opinion. And then the following week, you, Mackenzie, are going to come in with a pick of your own that connects to Persona in some way. Persona is available to stream on the Criterion channel. 
You can go out and get the Criterion Blu-ray or DVD if you so choose, or you can go and spend 300 whopping US dollars on the Ingmar Bergman cinema set. <laughs> I think it's got 33 movies in it. Wow. Otherwise, you can also probably rent it on any of your preferred platforms. But yeah, we're going to be doing Persona for our first uh, for our first full episode. Exciting stuff. I think my only thoughts I wrote on Letterboxd were that... Um, I was nervous at first because in the first scene we have like a, a dick pic jump scare <laughs> in Ingmar yeah. Bergman's persona, but then boy, oh boy, we get into the good shit. So I'm excited to watch it again. I've only watched it once. So I'm excited. Yeah. I think this is going to be my third or fourth viewing. So super excited. Uh, well, that does it for us on the pilot episode of the Criterion Connection, everyone. If you want to get in touch with us, you can always email us at the criterion connection at gmail.com you can send us your thoughts on this pilot episode you can tell us a little bit about how you like persona or you can just say hi we'd love to hear from you and you can also follow the show on instagram Mackenzie, anything else no but um i love you all if you're listening and thank you for joining us on the show this is gonna be exciting i'm pumped i'm pumped i keep saying exciting but i am yeah me too all right well bye everyone hope you have a great rest of your week we'll see you next time on the criterion connection and bye, Mackenzie. I hope you have a great rest of your day. Bye, and you too. <laughs>